0: The institution which made out like a bandit here among every all the uh, institutions and persons is the Internal Revenue Service and the United States government. The billions they collected in taxes which should never have been paid in the first place and which would not have been owing or paid had it not been for the SEC's culpability, its complicity starting in 1992. And I was not surprised to hear your, uh, your other guests say that kind of statement that the SEC made is very rare and nor- because normally investigations are simply closed with a no-action letter, not with a public announcement. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambroji. West Coast meets East Coast. And yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
1: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. My co host Bob Ambrosi from Massachusetts is in the State House today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. Today's show is sponsored by Clio, Huron Consulting Group, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Well, today's story is about Bernie Madoff, and that story is far from over. After a decade of bilking investors out of billions of dollars and running a Ponzi scheme, financier Bernie Madoff Pled guilty to 11 counts against him and could serve nearly 150 years behind bars for his actions if he lives that long. Well, Madoff awaits his sentence. Many who trusted and invested with him are left to pick up the pieces of their lives. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take an inside look at the fate of the victims and who else could be involved. Our guests today include attorney Ross Intelesano. He is a partner of the law firm of Rich and Intelisano, which represents individual and institutional investors in securities, arbitration, and litigation against financial institutions, Ross has extensive experience in large and complex securities and commodities fraud cases on behalf of investors worldwide. He's prosecuted claims against brokerage firms, banks, hedge funds, investment advisors, trust companies, and other financial firms. Mr. Intelisano is a leading authority on securities fraud and Ponzi schemes, and he represents a number of Madoff's victims. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, uh, Ross Intelisano. Thanks for having me, Craig. Well, our next guest in the Madoff story is personal, Dean Lawrence R. Vavell, Dean of the Massachusetts School of Law is one of Madoff's victims. He's been a government lawyer, a lawyer in private practice, and a law professor. In 1988, he was one of the founders and from its inception has been the dean of the Massachusetts School of Law, a school that has introduced extensive reforms into legal education and which especially focuses on providing legal education to the working class, midlife people, minorities, and immigrants. Dean Velvell has expressed his anger toward Bernie Madoff in his blog, Velvell on internationalaffairs.com. Welcome to the show, Dean Lawrence Velvell.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Well, if we could, please, Dean, could we start with your story? You've been very vocal on your blog, and I think from what I can, what I've read, considering filing a class-action lawsuit against the federal government.
0: Yes. Well, I'll be happy to tell you how I got into it. Uh, and I'm going to very ungraciously say something I don't normally say that I think my blog has been probably the most analytical writing, uh, of what, what, uh, has transpired in the Madoff case. I got into, uh, Madoff because I had heard about him for a number of years in the the mid, by the mid 1990s. I, uh, went up to his offices and was briefed on his investment strategy by his number two man, uh, Frank Pasquale. The investment strategy made all the sense in the world to me, and the uh, people who write about it, uh, even Harry Markopoulos, I think it is fair to say, uh, do say that it can make uh, a lot of sense, although Markopoulos... Uh, uh, does not think the results obtained by Madoff uh, were really feasible because they were too good, uh, something which I think people could debate if they wish to. I never found, uh, I never had a Heidner hair of any uh, suspicion that there was anything wrong uh, in the Madoff case. Uh, and uh, when uh, the Madoff case finally surfaced as a Ponzi scheme on December 11th, uh, I was, of course, uh, shocked and surprised, as were literally thousands of others. Uh, most of the people who invested in Madoff were, like me, small people. Uh, that has tended to get completely lost in, in the news. It, this is only now starting to change. Up until now, the news portrayed uh, the investors who lost money in Madoff as virtually nothing but uh, hedge funds and billionaires, or at least Uh and... Uh, Uh, I have been very active in a group called the Madoff Survivors, for whom I seem to write a a memo a minute almost. Uh, And some of these get posted, uh, they all get posted on Madoff Survivors, and some of them I post on my blog site because I think they're of more more generalized interest. Uh, And uh, I have been active in Madoff Survivors, which is a 300-plus person group uh, of small people, uh, for approximately two months, two and a half months now. And, uh, we think we can only estimate because we have no way of actually knowing that, uh, the Madoff survivors groups, uh, group probably lost collectively somewhere between 500 and 700 million dollars. So I think that's, a, a, a brief, uh, description of, uh, how I got involved and, uh, what, uh, I have been doing.
1: Well, Ross, you're uh, quite an expert on Ponzi schemes, and for our listeners who don't know the inner details of how a Ponzi scheme works, can you explain that?
2: Sure. Uh, What what normally happens is uh, an investment advisor or a broker or a hedge fund manager um, starts by uh, creating a fund in which he takes money from one investor uh, and multiple investors and starts investing it. Um, Normally what happens at some point, the advisor starts losing money on behalf of clients, and instead of coming to grips with that and disclosing that, the advisor uh, will create fake statements uh, and perpetuate the fraud and pretend that he's actually making money and take fresh money from new investors and pay money back out to investors who are requesting redemptions. In this situation, so basically it's, it's new money to pay people who are getting out. Uh, in this situation, this is the longest securities Ponzi scheme that we've ever experienced. Uh, in, in the fact that it went you know, 20 to 30 years, um, it, it, virtually unheard of. Uh, the longest one that we had seen prior to this was Sam Israel, who was the portfolio manager of the Bayou Fund, who ran his fund for about seven years.
1: How is it possible that something could go that long?
2: Um, you know, Madoff created sort of a mystique that he, uh, you know, he, he was basically uh, this investment guru that in good times and bad times could, could create, you know, significant, consistent returns, and you know, and not super significant, you know, 10 to 12 percent or 8 to 12 percent in any market. Um, I, I think it went on for so long uh, because he had a lot of feeder funds feeding his investments uh, to him. And that a lot of the feeder funds didn't do the proper due diligence, or the advisors didn't do the proper due diligence into uh, in, into what was going on. Obviously, the SEC dropped the ball as well, as did Finra, who was the prime supervisor and regulatory body for uh, his securities arm. Uh, and, and he, you know, during this bull market in the last 25 years, he, he just got away with it.
1: Dean Velvel, it's it's kind of how how did you get involved with Madoff? Would you just just a kind of a one among many places that you may have invested? Or, and how did how did other people find him, or how did he find other people?
0: Uh, I'm, I'm going to comment, and uh, I'm going to answer your question first. Comment and uh, add to something that was just said. Uh, I, I I knew somebody who was in Madoff. Uh, I I have never lived in an area where at the time. Madoff was uh, well known, uh, or had a lot of investors. I lived in Washington only up until 1987. Madoff was pretty much an unknown quantity in Washington at the time, but I happened to know somebody, and that's uh, and I happened to know uh, what Madoff had had allegedly accomplished, and that's how I got involved. But there was one other way reason uh, why I got involved, and it is a reason that bears on how Madoff was able. To keep this up for so long, and how he was able to bring in the feeder funds and grow the scam from 464 million dollars, I think it was, in 1992, to over 65 billion dollars in uh, 2008. And the way, uh, the, the point I'm driving at, the causative factor that I'm driving at is the Securities and Exchange Commission. People are well aware, of course, that the, that the commission dropped the ball entirely uh, after being drawn a map by Harry Markopoulos starting in 2000. But in fact, the SEC's culpability goes back to the year uh, 1992, to December of 1992, because that was the time when, after investigating the, the Madoff race jestai, as one might say, Investigating the, uh, two accountants who were his major feeder at the time. And in the course of that, investigating Madoff, the SEC publicly announced, and this may be unusual. Your other guest can comment on whether it's unusual or not, publicly announced that there was no fraud. Uh, and because, and, uh, that was on December 1st in the Wall Street Journal. And on December 16th, I believe it was the, uh, the investor, uh, with whom the two accountants had placed their money, was revealed to be Bernie Madoff. So it became uh, nationally known that Bernie Madoff was the person, uh, uh, as well as the two accountants, uh, about whom the SEC had publicly announced there was no fraud. Now, with the SEC making an announcement like that, and I have to say that I know there are people of high repute, I will leave it at that. People of high repute who think there was corruption involved. But be that as it may, when the SEC made the statement that there was no fraud, it then became Katie bar the door because uh, people thought, certainly people like I thought, uh, and, uh, and I at one time was actually a securities lawyer for a couple of years, but I nonetheless thought, and people who had no legal or securities law background surely thought in the thousands That if the SEC is going to say there is no fraud here, then this is on the up and up. And that was an open sesame and uh, therefore a very crucial causative factor in enabling Madoff to build up this uh, scam from less than half a billion uh, to 65 billion.
1: Ross, is that fairly typical of what you see in Ponzi schemes? Is it there's some type of government endorsement of it? I mean, it's rather surprising.
2: It's very surprising and, and actually very rare. What often happens, and I, and I think Dean Valvella is, is correct, what often happens is if there's an investigation by the SEC or any regulatory body and they decide not to do anything, at the, the only thing you'll potentially get is a no-action letter, um, but you certainly wouldn't get a public endorsement that's going to be covered by any major newspaper like the Journal uh, that this is not a scheme. Um, so I, I, I think that certainly helped perpetuate the fraud And I think that because of Madoff's, uh, at the time, high standing in the securities industry for his market-making business and the fact that he was the former president of NASDAQ, certainly uh, must have played some sort of role in the kid gloves being used uh, on him during these investigations. And he was investigated numerous times. It wasn't even just that investigation. So, I mean, the SEC had plenty of opportunities, as did FINRA, which at the time was the NASD, uh and I and I think if you look at today's complaint that was actually filed by the SEC against the accountants, um uh this guy Freeling here in, in, in New York, you'll see that the SEC has actually outlined all the red flags that they missed during all the years that they were charged with with regulating uh with madoff securities. Um so I I think the SEC definitely played a role um and and it's unbelievably unfortunate that it got Allowed to grow to this level, where you have plenty of investors around the world, and certainly in the U.S., who you know lost either a lion's share of their net worth or all their net worth. And, and like and like Dean said, you know we're not wealthy, sophisticated investors. I mean, a lot of our clients um, lost you know 75 to 90 percent of their net worth, which was under a million dollars. Uh, and got to Madoff through various entities, normally through third-party advisors who recommended um, that they invest in feeder funds, and actually never even mentioned that it was going to Madoff. A lot of these people, when Madoff blew up, didn't even know they had exposure to Madoff. So it's really a, a terrible story. And I think what happened, besides the SEC, is that you had a situation where an entire cottage industry of third-party advisors was was created and grew around Madoff. So all you had to do was raise money and dump it to Bernie and take either your one percent or your two and twenty or whatever you were doing, and it was it was automatic money. And I think that's what really helped grow uh, his business because a lot of these feeder funds and these advisors uh, had it so easy. All they had to do is say, "Look, give me a million dollars. I'll guarantee between eight and twelve percent." And who's not going to do that over a long period of time? So I think that's really helped grow the the Ponzi scheme as well.
1: Dean Vavell, are these individual feeder funds, are they liable for uh, the losses that you and and others have suffered, along with the SEC and potentially this accountant?
0: My view on that has uh, altered over time because of revelations that uh, have uh, been disclosed. At first, I thought that the feeder funds, if negligent, which they surely are, would be liable only to their own investors. And that is based on the fact that, as as your other guests can uh, attest, I believe, that uh, causation in security, securities law is uh, fairly carefully uh, circumscribed by the courts, particularly the Supreme Court, so as not to make uh, some culprit uh, liable to the whole world. There was, I forgot the latest case in the Supreme Court on this, uh, just a year or so ago, there was uh, such a case. I've begun to change my mind about the surface, about the, whether uh, feeder funds uh, liability will be thusly circumscribed and will not extend to the uh, whole world of Madoff investors. And while what I'm about to say is perhaps somewhat novel, uh, I think there is good reason for it. I know David K. Johnston, the famous New York Times, uh, former New York Times reporter, brought up the same point to me that I'm about to make. Uh, as your guest said, there is no question, there is zero question that the feeder funds were instrumental in growing this scam to the size to which it grew, and that they did it because they were making easy money. Uh, Marco Politz has even pointed out it was... St- that Madoff would give them 4%, and when asked uh, why he would do that, he would say, he would uh, he would lyingly say, well, I'm content to make uh, our, our money on execution of the trades, which his whole family must have known were not being executed, in fact, because they were in charge of execution. Um, the only people being executed were the investors. Um, so, uh, what it, what appears to have happened is that the feeder funds deliberately. Uh, Marco Polis calls it a bribe uh, because they were making so much money, this unusual 4%. Uh, they turned away. They, they invested the money. They turned away. Uh, away. Some of them positively knew. There's no doubt that a few of them at least knew that something funny was going on here, but they didn't care. Many of them thought it was front-running in, uh, in securities terms, but they, many of them suspected there was much going on. There was Uh, illegal and unusual, but they did not care because they were making so much money. And had they not saved Madoff's bacon, and I think they probably did that, and at minimum uh, they uh, enabled the scam to grow. Uh, If any of them had gone, uh, as so many people on Wall Street did not go uh, uh, to the SEC, Marco Polo seems to have been virtually the only one, maybe the only one, But there are many other people whose names have come out who also suspected and did not go, but did not go to the SEC. Had these feeder fund people gone to the SEC instead of turning a blind eye because they were making so much money, this whole thing might have ended much earlier. And many, many people, I would be one of those people, uh, would not have put in more money, would have taken out whatever money they could take out a long time ago. Uh, would not have uh, in invested money in the first instance, uh, as, uh, after 2000. So, uh, while the law would seem to indicate, uh, thus, uh, currently that causation of damages, of injury and damages, uh, by feeder funds will be limited, or at least would have been in the past, uh, limited, uh, to investors in the feeder funds, I think a very strong argument is going to be made here. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, the, the feeder funds and the banks, there are many banks, as you know, who have, you know, they're, they're worth, uh, hundreds of billions, if not trillions. They've got a lot of money to pay. Uh, had they acted instead of, uh, permitting Madoff to get b- bigger and worse, uh, many people who lost money would not have lost their money. In truth, they are a cause, uh, of the disaster. The question is going to be whether the law recognizes that they're the cause of the disaster.
1: Ross, what's the likelihood that anybody's going to see refunds of money out of this scheme? I and mean, the frozen assets, and there's potentially people that are liable here, but that's an awful lot of money to lose. Uh,
2: yes, this is how I think it's going to play out. The investors who invested directly with Madoff have their SIPIC claims, which are capped at $500,000 per account. And I expect that those people who do have these direct investments will, will get that money from from the government. the the, the quick the, the the tougher question is the investors who got to Madoff through third party advisors, brokerage firms, and/or investment advisors who recommend the feeder funds that fed most of the money to Madoff. In those situations, what our firm is doing is we're representing investors who um, invested. Through registered investment advisors who had a fiduciary duty to do the proper due diligence into any entity they recommended for our clients, a lot of these uh, advisors put a ton of their clients' money into Madoff-related feeder funds without even disclosing that the funds were actually ending up in Madoff's hands. People thought they had diversified hedge funds or diversified funds in general. Those types of claims, I think, will be successful for the advisors not, uh, at the very least, uh, being grossly negligent and not fulfilling their fiduciary duties. The problem with a lot of the claims, though, is that a lot of the advisors were all in to Madoff, and the concern is collectability. Will these advisors have enough funds to pay all these potential litigations? We have been only taking claims against advisors who did not have 100% exposure to Madoff, uh, who have the financial viability to pay these types of claims. We're handling most of them in arbitration, pursuant to arbitration clauses in the investment advisory agreements or the customer agreements. And we think that those investors have a good chance of recovery, uh, along with the tax breaks that they're likely going to get uh, pursuant to the IRS's uh, statement yesterday, to have a chance to potentially be made whole unfortunately, the people who directly invested with Madoff will be limited probably to the civic lens.
1: Well, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the Madoff scandal and the fate of the victims.
3: Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Topclassactions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At Topclassactions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise your settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to topclassactions.com slash attorney. That's topclassactions.com slash attorney.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Attorney Ross Intelisano, partner of the law firm of Rich and Intelisano, who represents some victims of the Madoff scandal, and Dean Lawrence Vilvell, Dean of the Massachusetts School of Law, one of Madoff's victims. Ross, we know that you have to leave early, so what we'd like to do at this point is wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information about the discussion today.
2: My final thoughts that this is the most horrific securities fraud of all time I think that if investors do their proper investigation and get to the right counsel, uh, they can potentially at least try to recover some money back under the right circumstances. Be wary of securities attorneys who don't practice in this area, because unfortunately I'm hearing a lot of stories about people getting very, very bad advice. and, And it's good to hear that Dean Velvel is so uh, involved in, in these made-off victim groups because they're now banding together and making sure that they're taken care of properly. Uh, I can be reached. Uh, my law firm is Rich and Intellisano LLP. We are located uh, at 111 Broadway, Suite 1303 in New York, New York. My telephone number is 212-433-1480, and my email address is ross at com, which is R-O-S-S at R I C H I N T E L I S A N O dot com and our website is richintelisano.com. dot com.
1: Great. Well thanks very much for being on the show today. Well Dean Lavelle, let's turn to you. You've heard Ross describe what he thinks people are going to get going to recover. Um and if it's not too personal to ask, what category do you find yourself in?
0: Well I, I'm a direct investor. Uh a lot of direct investors are going to have trouble with civic I'm not saying whether uh, I have filed uh, a CIPIC claim yet or whether I intend to or not or when. I'm just making a general comment, which I know to be generally true. Uh, a lot of people are going to have trouble with CIPIC because a CIPIC trustee has taken what I personally think is an illegal stance that in calculating how much money you lost uh, for purposes of determining whether you have a right to get back $500,000 or some or some lesser amount, uh you uh, strictly you follow a strictly cash in cash out technique how much money did you put in how much money uh did you take out and that i believe is illegal under the new times case under the prevailing principle of legitimate expectations in civic and security law because under the principle of legitimate expectations which was plumbed in new times uh you have to read new Times very carefully or you will be misled by it as many people have been uh under the prevailing theory of legitimate expectations uh you must use the amount on uh, the last made off monthly statement of november 30th as the amount that a person had and that creates a very for many people that creates a very different situation uh than the trustees uh, I regard as unlawful uh a uh, claim that he will only use cash in cash out uh, under his view, many people won't recover. Under the appropriate view of legitimate expectations, many people will recover who otherwise would not. Now, as to uh, as to the IRS, uh, after uh, uh, Doug Shulman's uh, talk yesterday uh, and the uh, and the, po- the posting of the IRS uh, revenue ruling and the uh, new procedure, the people, of course, uh, in a in a an understandable fit of exhilaration. Uh, waxed highly enthusiastic about what the IRS, uh, has done. And let me say personally that just, uh, one of the peculiarities, I, I find so many of these in this, in this deal is that Doug Shulman is the uh, son of uh, people who my wife and I have known since 1959 and 1960. Uh, and in fact called me, uh, to say he would not uh, meet with me, uh, pursuant to a letter that, uh, I had sent him requesting a meeting and I thought that was nice of him. Uh, but, uh, the, the fact remains that in my judgment at least, that the IRS uh, guidance of yesterday is nigh on to disaster for the small man. Uh, I have written a, a, a posting about that. Uh, I may even post it on my blog site. I'm certainly going to post it on Madoff Survivors as to why I'm, a, I have a, I've taken this as a currently heretical view. I think the view which is going to become less heretical as people take a sober second look uh, after the exhilaration initially, the initial exhilaration wears off. Uh, I think it's uh, that uh, people uh, are going to take are going to be of the view that uh, what the IRS did yesterday is not very helpful at all, and uh, if it, it, it becomes less helpful, the lawyers are, are in many cases. I wouldn't say this of people involved in tax law, but in in most cases, lawyers are infamous for being innumerate, as it is said and we think about legal principles and ver- verbal definitions, and we don't think about the actual numbers involved. And when you run the actual numbers uh, concerning uh, what the IRS has done for guidance, when you apply the, its principles of guidance to the actual numbers, you will find out that uh, notwithstanding the fact that people think this uh, theft loss deduction is a huge big deal, it will recover for a lot of people Oh ten or twelve percent of what they lost, and not more than that, uh, and in addition to which, uh, in order to uh, qualify for the safe harbor provision, unless I am mistaken, and i I've, I've got a draft of my blog going out to tax lawyers now because I want to be sure before I post it that I'm factually accurate, as I'm virtually certain that I am, but I do want to check it nonetheless uh, uh, under the under the uh, provision for a safe harbor provision uh, for a safe harbor, you must give up uh, all claims to tax refunds for prior years uh, for taxes that you paid on phantom income. Uh, you must give up all claims uh, under the claim of right doctrine. Uh, and while most people conventionally thought that it, uh, the claim of right doctrine does not apply to Ponzi schemes, uh, there's a very good argument to the contrary, particularly if you read the statute and realize it does not say something that everybody assumes it says. Uh, about restoration of income, in a way that we differ, it, it doesn't differ. It's not different from a Ponzi scheme, is what I'm saying. And statute does not talk about uh, restoration uh, of income if you're a cash basis taxpayer, uh, and allows uh, allows the claim of right by a mere uh, reversal of accrual, even though you never got the money if you're an accrual basis taxpayer. So uh, you have to give up the claim of right. Uh, Argument uh, for past uh, uh, for tax refunds for uh, taxes paid on phantom income. You must give up uh, a claim of going back year by year for refunds of taxes uh, paid previously. Uh, you must uh, uh, put down what you will, uh, you, and you must subtract from your theft loss what you will receive from CIPIC when that is completely undetermined for people right now, uh, particularly because uh, the trustee. Seems to be making a great uh, legal mistake, which is going to be challenged both before the trustee and before the bankruptcy court. And there may even be a declaratory judgment filed uh, in, the, in the federal district court. So there are a lot of things uh, that to make a huge, uh, uh, that are hugely adverse to the small, to the small man and uh, less adverse, but uh, in some ways still adverse even to the super wealthy uh, about this. Uh, this uh, guidance issued yesterday, and as I say, I think people, when they analyze it, unless I'm very factually mistaken about some crucial details, uh, are going to come to that conclusion.
1: Well, Dean Vavell, we've reached the, near the end of our program where it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. One of the things I'd like you to talk about as you bring us your final thoughts is your personal uh, meeting with uh, Bernie Madoff, I understand that you actually met the man.
0: I met Madoff uh, when the meeting was over, and I was walking through his offices to see the trading floor. I met him for perhaps 20 seconds. Uh you know, it was just, pleasant. hi, how are you, this and that. And, in fact, I didn't even do mo- most of the talking, even as to these minor pleasantries. It was somebody else I was with who did. Uh, I met with his number I two man. And uh, I, let, let me put it this way for simplicity's sake. I, I took notes, uh, at the meeting. Afterwards, I transcribed my, the notes in legible fashion because they had just been scribbled madly during the meeting. And I, uh, I had the notes, uh, typed up and they are printed in full in a blog, uh, that I wrote. Uh, I think it was my blog of early January. I wrote a January 20th through 25th. I wrote a six, the first time I wrote about this, I've written about it three times now. It was in a six part blog. Uh, and uh, the, my conversation with Frank DiPascali, The notes from that conversation are, are set uh, forth. Uh, you know, as lawyers say, in height verba, verbatim, so people can find uh, can find that out uh, there. And, and I'm sorry, your your other point was what that you wanted me to address?
1: Did bring up your uh, address your final thoughts for us and give us your contact information?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, well, my final thoughts uh, are um, there are the usual things, of course. But there are a couple of things which are, seem to me to be very vital. One I will, as to one I will echo your last get because I, and I know it terribly well because I am a member of a 300 person group, almost very, very few of whom are lawyers, probably none of whom are securities lawyers or tax, uh, there are some tax accountants involved. Uh, people write and say things all the time they haven't the least notion what they're talking about. So you, ha- you have to be aware. So that's point one. Uh, uh, point two is I-, I think it's absolutely crucial uh, that the IRS uh, be required by legislation uh, to provide uh, refunds of income taxes paid on this fraud. Uh, as people have been pointing out, myself may be last to-, to come to the party, but uh, I-, I certainly agree with it. Um, the, 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 institution which made out like a bandit here among every, all the, uh, institutions and persons is the Internal Revenue Service and the United States government. The billions they collected in taxes which should never have been paid in the first place and which would not have been owing or paid had it not been for the SEC's culpability, its complicity starting in 1992. And I was not surprised to hear your, uh, your other guests say, that kind of statement that the SEC made is very rare, and nor- because normally investigations are simply closed with a no-action letter, not with a public announcement that somebody like Bernie Madoff or anybody else is peachy, uh, peachy uh, clean and hunky dory. Um, th- so I think that should happen uh, as well. I think it's vital that that happens as well. I also think it's vital that the trust- the civic trustee be made to follow the law which currently he has absolutely no intention of doing the way many of us see it. Um, and so those are, you know, and I think it's important to keep in mind that while uh, large firms, uh, all firms, are representing the big people. I mean, I got the impression that your last guest is representing the big people. Of course this is the case because the, firm, the lawyers want, want to make money. You know, nobody can gainsay that, but they are representing the big people. The, uh, the news media has been playing up the billionaires and the centimillionaires. I think it's very vital to understand that if I had to estimate, I would estimate 80%, 90% of the people who lost their last farthing or close to it in this scam are the small people. People who may have had, uh, over 20 years may have had an account that grew to a million or a million and a half or two million dollars. Not people who had a hundred or two hundred or four hundred million, uh, in tomato. Uh, so th- those are my how final can our, thoughts.
1: How can our listeners reach you when they uh, oh, uh, would like I'm to sorry. get in touch with you, Dean? Yeah, well,
0: uh, let me say my uh, first name is Lawrence with a W, last name is V as in Victor, E-L, V as in Victor, E-L. You can call me at the Massachusetts School of Law, 978 uh, 681 My email address is velvel at mslaw, uh, M as in Michael, S as in Sam, dot uh, and uh, our address is 500 Federal Street in Andover, Massachusetts. And um, I think that covers it, does it not?
1: It does. And thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And a very special thanks to our guests for being with us today. Remember, you can find all of our Legal Talk shows on iTunes as well. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic.
0: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. Every week a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by law.com.